If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The GabFest is sponsored by GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Now all you need is a webcam to turn your online meetings into group HD video conferences. Get a 30-day free trial at gotomeeting.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 23rd, 2014, the secret waiting list edition today. The Obama administration scrambles to respond to the VA scandal. Is it too little, too late? Then Tea Party candidates flop in Tuesday's primaries. Does that mean the Tea Party is a spent force or does it mean just the opposite? And then Ta-Nehisi Coates' phenomenal argument starting article about reparations in the Atlantic I am David Plotz, the editor of Slate. I am in Slate, New York this week. Emily Bazelon has driven down, trained down, biked down from New Haven. That's right. I walked the whole way. You walked. Here. Good. Yep. That's very environmentally sound of you, Emily. Nicely done. Every step of 95. How long did it take you? How long would it take to walk from New Haven here? It would be really miserable. That would be like the worst, <laughs> walk, worst walk in America. <laughs> <laughs> and then back in Washington, protecting... The homeland is John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hello, John. Hi. How's Washington? It's not bad. It's a little warm. Uh, I would prefer it to be a little bit more spring-like, but it's sort of incipient summer. But um, but other than that, it's just lovely. Good. All right. Just a reminder, Slate Plus, which is our brand spanking new Marvelous membership program, has started. And if you're a GabFest listener, that gets you all sorts of excellent goodies, ad-free podcast, bonus podcast segments. This week, our bonus segment is actually a great interview that I did with the author of a book about World War I. It's really, really interesting about the last Americans who survived that war, the last soldiers living in America. There's also a great podcast extra this week, which is that we did a, if you're a fan of The Americans, that show The Americans. Huge fan. Huge Although fan. I've been waiting to watch the second season until the right. summer. Okay, well... We got something for you, which is that the showrunner, Joe Weisberg, and the other showrunner, Joel, whose last name I can't remember, but Joel has a last name. And they did a, a podcast with our own Willa Paskin talking about the second season of The Americans and the season finale. Oh, I can't so wait if to you are a, to Yeah. Well, if you are a Slate Plus member, you can get it. So sign up for Slate Plus. You can do that at slate.com slash GabFest Plus. That helps out the GabFest. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Or email me directly. I'll get you the best discount, david.plots at slate.com, david.plots at slate.com. Benghazi is not a scandal. The IRS controversy is not a scandal. But the Veterans Affairs scandal actually is a scandal, writes John Dickerson of Slate this week. So Washington is seething after reports that dozens of veterans in Arizona died while waiting for care from the VA and that the VA hospital there had 
what is called a secret waiting list. When you have a secret waiting list, it's pretty much, that's not good. No. But where they were supposed to take veterans and get them initial appointments in two to four weeks, and instead it was taking months, but they were lying about it to their seniors back in Washington. Republicans are calling for the resignation of VA Secretary Eric Shinseki. The president has dispatched one of his most trusted advisors, Rob Neighbors, to Arizona to try to unravel and fix what's going on at the VA. So, John, why is this a scandal in a way that Benghazi isn't? A couple of things. I think for me, uh, having had some recent experience with family illness, you know, when somebody in your family is really sick, it's a pretty dark and stressful moment, even in the best circumstances, because medicine is confusing. There are all these tests that you take that are sometimes useful. Sometimes they send you down blind alleys. And the whole thing is is uh, the stakes are quite high because, you know, you're terrified that if you don't get the answer, something will reach a point of no return. You know, that's if you're in an emergency situation. And if you're in a long-term care situation, it's full of all of the, the indignities and, um, and frustrations that people who experience this know, the constant different appointments and the confusing prescriptions and getting all kinds of different answers from different people. Again, that's if you're going through a pretty good care experience. What was happening here was people were going through that, and it was sort of the bad part of it was multiplied by 10. You know, they were they were waiting longer. Their records were getting lost. In the Phoenix uh, situation alone, we've heard a lot about this number of 40 people who died while they were waiting, and the stories are heart-wrenching. Now, it's very important to point out that what's not been proved is whether they died as a result of the waits, and some of the families claim that that's what happened, but that's one of the things at issue. Beyond the 40 who died, in the Phoenix VA alone, there were 1,400 to 1,600 people on this secret list. And so if you if you go back to that kind of personal angst that I'm talking about, every moment of delay is an is, you know, that much more painful. Every moment you're waiting to hear from that doctor you hope has the answer or you're waiting to get into that incredibly painful test that you hope gives you some light at the end of the tunnel. Every moment you have to wait, it really has, you know, pain associated with it. And so that's where I really first took hold of this. And then just briefly, this is not a place where we argue about whether the government has a role. The government has a role because it promised these veterans this benefit. And so it's a pretty clear instance where government has a uh, has a duty to basically hold up its end of the bargain, uh, and it's not. I think there's a distinction between having a secret list and lying about it, and I don't think the government has to treat every veteran in two to four weeks who comes in. But we can't say that's we what we're doing. We can't say what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. sure, yeah, no, whatever. So is, the problem but... the li- is the problem the lying or is the problem committing to doing something that, that they can't do because they don't have the resources or because they're incompetent? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. What we would want to have is a well-functioning public health care system and service that is a model and proves that someday the government might be able to do this for everyone the way they do it in normal countries like Europe. And instead, Europe this is makes a you... Right. True. Normal places like Europe, France and England being the countries I was thinking of. Instead, we have what seems to be this totally dysfunctional bureaucracy with a lot of hiding of fault, which is scary because that's our kind of fear of big government. Well, whether the two to four weeks is the right time limit or not, as you point out, David, it's if you've told them, <laughs> that's what you're going to do. And also the waits here were of uh, extraordinary lengths, which I don't I think people wouldn't want even, you know, under any circumstances. I think the problem in terms of reform here is that the VA, 
has gone through peaks and valleys, and there was a it had gotten quite a lot better from the times in the '90s when it was when there were these horror stories, and there's still pockets of horror stories. But the VA had gotten a lot better, and polls of people in the VA system, it depends generationally. There's a switch. A lot of Iraq and and, uh, veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan are not so bullish on the VA, but a lot of the older veterans do feel better about the VA. But these limits, these one to two week um, limits that were put on it was an attempt to fix some of the existing problems. And what happened was basically the VA systems in Phoenix and in these 28 other areas that are being investigated, it's kind of like No Child Left Behind. When they put standards on the schools, the schools just started cheating. The standards were meant to That's kind of get good. at the problem. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, and then everybody just decided, okay, we're going to put all of our energy not into dealing with these patients, but into trying to figure out how to get around the, to get around the system. I agree. I think you've done a really good diagnosis there, John, and you have pointed out all the wrongs that are being done. The context, which is practically impossible for anyone to present in a public forum because you immediately sound like you're defending the act of letting these people die and and creating secret waiting lists. But there's an enormous amount of context. Namely, you have a huge surge in people seeking health care from the VA. So essentially doubling the number of requests for care from the VA. You have a million vets from Afghanistan and Iraq who are seeking disability from the VA, seeking claims, veterans claims from them. And you have more soldiers who survive their wounds because we're better at treating soldiers in the, in the battlefield. And so you have more wounded vets than you expect. You have all this PTSD, which is now a treatable condition, which is a good thing. I think we would agree because the federal government is now paying off Agent Orange claims for Vietnam. So there's a huge surge of, of Vietnam vets who are seeking treatment for that. And you have a federal budgeting that has become super chaotic and disorganized and, and unreliable. And even though the veterans funding has generally been protected in that budgeting, it's still if you're a, if you're a VA official, you are not sure where the money's coming and if it's coming reliably, all of which is not to forgive creating yeah. secret waiting lists and lying, but it is to suggest that it's a very hard challenge for anyone to deal with. And of course, moments like this, make all those problems worse in the sense that once we start losing faith in these institutions, it's harder to keep them stable and well-funded. I think that's really, really important. And one of the things I was trying to write about this week, which I didn't, is that there is a huge context here, both of the current wars and all the things you mentioned, David, and then also the fact that the VA has been a, it's a very hard thing to do to run, to handle 230,000 claims a day, to run the largest health system in the country. One of the things we do when we get at these scandals is we kind of just totally lose our head about that kind of context, which means the solutions just go to kind of solve the thing of the moment, and then everybody leaves when it's gone and doesn't deal with the fact that the VA is a, is something that needs kind of constant monitoring and constant assessment. In a sense, you want the scandal because it focuses the attention on something that is important. On the other hand, the scandal leads to all kinds of kind of ameliorative actions that are meant to sort of get through the news cycle. It doesn't really take on the bigger context that you laid out there, David. One other piece of context I think I would also offer is that, and and one of the other reasons this is a scandal, is there are all kinds of people inside the VA who are amazing and who do really hard work in a tough system. And all the tiny kindnesses that feel so important when you're going through this are provided by lots of people inside the VA. And those are the people who are kind of, there's a baby with the bathwater problem here, which is that they're getting, or I should say, maybe they're being tarred with a broad brush, which is perhaps the better analogy. Um, They shouldn't be forgotten as we're trying to reach for context here too. So did either of you 
come away from the story as I come away from almost every story I read about any kind of healthcare, thinking, I don't understand why we have a veterans healthcare system at all anyway. I understand why we have medical care that treats soldiers in the immediate aftermath of, of injuries and battlefield battlefield wounds, excuse me, and that that's its own separate space that we need to maintain. And you have battlefield surgeons, and that's all valuable. But I don't understand as a long-term proposition why we have a veterans affairs health system. We should just have a health system that serves everyone. And the, this idea that we've created a separate category and create a whole infrastructure for that seems bizarre. I know that it's based on promises that we make to soldiers, but it does seem strange to me. I guess one argument for it is that the government I mean, it's the kind of ultimate test of a lot of the things that uh, the president has also argued as a part of his Affordable Care Act, which is you can control what treatments are used. And if you learn something about treating one kind of uh, set of veterans with special needs, then you can apply that to other sets. And you can guarantee a minimum standard of care that we're not very good at guaranteeing outside of this context, at least certainly not pre-Obamacare. The reason they can provide drugs at such good cost is because they use the leverage of all their... um, veterans to actually bargain down costs. And so... I mean, you could argue that why do we have this VA system or why don't we have some national health clinic system right. for everyone? Right. This is the, si- this is the single way. payer model. Right? Yeah, I was going to say, normally you're I'm arguing why everyone don't we should have... have veterans care. Except that at moments like this, then people who are against nationalized health care say, no, we should tear down the VA system because they would all be better off with privatized health care. This isn't the best moment for arguing that the VA is the model for single payer, right? One of the interesting things about the VA, though, that I was t- I was talking to a doctor who said that because it's all connected and the government is involved, you can get and use VA data to make quick healthcare decisions in a way that's harder to do in the private market. And, and for example, there were some people who were taking medications for low testosterone. They found that the veterans who were taking it very quickly, they were able to see that there were these heart-related effects and blood pressure-related effects as a result of taking this. Which lots of people may be dying of heart attacks very soon in the next years because of all these low-testosterone clinics that are blossoming. But they learned in the VA because they could just look at the data quickly. It was such a huge data set. And then they could change policy right away, as opposed to the normal way you kind of learn these things, clinical trials and, and a slower process. That was just one way in which, because the process is sort of centralized, there are benefits to its centralization, even though right now we're hearing all of the ways in which centralization might be causing problems. So, Emily, this is, among other things, a severe political problem for President Obama and the Democrats. It's clear that Republicans are going to have a field day with this leading up to the 2014 elections, as they had with the other great example of Obama administration incompetence, the healthcare.gov rollout. Is it fixable the way healthcare.gov was fixable? Or well, is this is this just going to be a, an albatross for them? I mean, I think John's piece earlier this week pointed out that the response by the administration to healthcare.gov is like the five alarm fire response. So now we know what that looks like, and it puts a lot of pressure on Ron neighbors and the president ultimately to make it seem as if we're really dealing with this in an urgent crisis driven way, but that the solutions are not just these temporary band-aids, that they're actually going to fix this. And the problem, I think, is that it's one thing to repair a website and another thing to repair a whole actual healthcare system. There just seemed to me, I mean, as bad as the website seemed at the moment, it's like a technical problem without real people. This is a whole human system that we're talking about. John, do you think from your reporting that the administration is treating this as a four alarm fire, three alarm, two, five, seven, yeah, and 12? If you- 
I think healthcare.gov sets the standard for how we should measure all government responses now, because normally when we talk about, you know, what a president should do and he should get on it and show leadership and all that, it happens in a kind of um, fantasy world in which we imagine the best possible outcome that can be magically sprinkled on a thing and, and then measure whatever's happening against that imaginary thing. But we now know what happened in the rescue of healthcare.gov, which was pretty quickly they fixed the technology, ironed out the management problems, and then achieved a level of signups that nobody, when it was screwing up, thought they would ever achieve. Obviously, there are plenty of other existing problems with the Affordable Care Act. But in terms of emergency response, we have a real world thing against which to measure them. Measured against that real world, if that's a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, they're at about a 6 here. Now, part of the problem is that you have it's a different situation. I mean, there are some parallels. The system for scheduling vets is apparently 25 years old. So the technology there can be fixed. There are also 185 members of the inspector general's team in the middle of an investigation. You have to be sensitive to what's going on there. And as we've been talking, there's context here. And so you don't want to go flailing in and fixing something when you could make things worse or injure people who are doing their job just fine. That wasn't exactly the case with the healthcare website. The website itself was built sort of from scratch. There weren't legacy issues you had to be sensitive to. And then finally, there's there's feeling that Eric Shinseki, um, the director of the uh, Department of Veterans, or secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, you know, there are people calling for his head. Allison Lundgren Grimes, the Democratic Senate candidate in Kentucky, has just called for him to be removed. That's not the president's MO. He doesn't usually just throw people out. But there's also an argument that people are making is that Shinseki is trusted and is actually on the case and has been in terms of trying to get, you know, improve the VA. And if you throw him out for symbolic reasons, you may win a couple of news cycles, but you actually retard the progress you want to make in fixing some of these problems. Let us hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. You want to do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently, but constant trips to the post office can get in the way of that. It eats up valuable time that could be spending on growing your business instead. So you can bring the post office right to your desk with Stamps.com. You don't have to be a postal expert. Stamps.com makes it easy. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using what you already have, which is your own computer and printer. Then you just hand it to your mail carrier. Boom, it's that easy. So join the 500,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com and never have to go to the post office again. For all the details of our special offer and to sign up today, it's a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all those details, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. On Tuesday night, primary voters in Kentucky, Georgia, Idaho, Pennsylvania, and a few other states I cannot remember pick candidates for November's general elections. The storyline coming out of Tuesday, the kind of obvious one, was Tea Party fails as the most conservative challengers to Mitch McConnell in Kentucky for the open seat, Senate seat in Georgia, to Idaho House Republican Mike Simpson, all lost. That does not seem like the right conclusion to draw, but let's talk about it. So, Emily, in 2010 and 2012, Tea Party insurgents won primaries and open seats. They toppled a few incumbents here and there in primaries in Nevada, in Delaware, Delaware, Indiana, Texas. And sometimes that led to general election victories. You had Ted Cruz winning. You had uh, Rand Paul winning. And, and some, sometimes it led to some and, big defeats. And sometimes bizarre, abject defeats. Yeah, you had uh, Sharon Engel or, or the one in Delaware, whose name I can't remember. Me neither. Yeah. John? And, and um, Todd Aiken um, and Richard Murdoch. 
That's oh, my yeah. God. How soon we forget? I am not a witch. What is her um, name? The one in Delaware. Crystal oh, Christine O'Donnell. No. No, Christine O'Donnell. Right. Christine Crystal Ball is the Democrat, right? At least I got the first yeah. syllable right. So why uh, why 2014? Not so much so far. Well, it seems like the Republican Party and the big interest groups, the, you know, quote, independent spending groups have gotten a handle on this and they now are on the case. They're raising money earlier. They're not letting these insurgent candidates take hold. And they really poured money into supporting the establishment candidates. But I think we talked about this a couple of months ago. That doesn't mean that the views of the Tea Party are not reflected in the candidates who won. In some ways, you can see the Tea Party is having basically become such an infiltration of the Republican Party that we're just talking about two different brands of hardline conservatives as opposed to the sort of old Yankee Republican model who does, isn't represented in any of the victors from Tuesday. Right, John? Yeah. Essentially, you've had a co-opting of the Tea Party, which means there's less to fight over. Basically, what's happening is candidates who are talented are now appealing to Tea Party voters, and they're winning their races. There's a lot of money being thrown in, but the money is not going to have a squishy kind of Arlen Specter-like Republican win in North Carolina. What's going in is a lot of money to make sure that a candidate who believes in lower taxes, lower government spending, individual liberty, not taking Medicaid money as a part of the Affordable Care Act wins instead of getting knocked off by a, a candidate who has kind of some exciting incendiary things to say, but who isn't that much more conservative, but who is incredibly bad at politics. Ideologically, the conservative movement is fully in the Tea Party. They're together. They are in sync. So when an establishment candidate wins, it's not really that much different than that. Right. It's like you're civilizing or making more boring the same set of views. Yeah. And when, you know, and there are professional spokespeople for the Tea Party who see distinctions here and think that these establishment candidates are, you know, are not going to fight when push comes to shove in battles of principle. But, you know, Ron Johnson, uh, who was a candidate beloved by the Tea Party senator from Wisconsin, is now being criticized in the Senate for not being sufficiently bound to his principles. So basically, anybody who ever gets elected and has to come to Washington gets, um, with the exception of perhaps Ted Cruz, kind of gets that. So unless that. you're a total naysayer, you are branded, I mean, because then you're part of the government, you're cooperating, you're right. part of the problem. So the distinctions here are all a little bit phony, and it's partially the press has been sloppy. I mean, I think I've been sloppy at times. There are certain, t- Dave Weigel wrote a, a great piece this week pointing out how all of the candidates who were bad in 12 and 10 were not all necessarily Tea Party candidates. Now, I would argue they were all sort of insurgent candidates. They were not the pick of the political elites. But just because they weren't the pick of the political elites doesn't necessarily mean they were a Tea Party candidate. It gets a little, uh, you're slicing the bologna pretty thin, but it's it's kind of important to get the classifications right because then when we have conversations now, we need the classifications help us know whether anything what's really changed and not as much as changed as people think who are framing this as a victory for the establishment over the Tea Party. If I were a GOP operative, which I'm not, as you probably am, but if I were GOP operative, the only thing I would worry about in these results, to me, the, the kind of secret sauce that helps political parties succeed is the sense of fun and excitement, that when you seem to be a fun, exciting party, you get young voters, you get volunteers, you get like a lot of the on the ground stuff that makes stuff happen. So you need a little and of you, the wild and you crazy. Need you the need the wild and crazy. And you off. saw that with Obama in, in 2008 and some in 2012. Mostly you just failed to see it in the Republicans in 2012. 
the Republicans are going to sweep in 2014. I don't think there's any there's no kind of ambiguity about that. They're going to sweep no matter what the Democrats do, barring some kind of strange, unexpected event happening. But it, for 2016, I would worry that it, to have tamed the Tea Party too much might be a problem for them. They need those kids just acting up and being crazy. And like, that's the vim and vigor. But that don't they still the have life. those people? I mean, Ted Cruz is alive and well. He's not going anywhere. Ted Cruz and, and Rand Paul, are, I think, are valuable yeah. for them in that respect. Yeah. But Rand Paul is not. I, I mean, I get what you're saying, the bandwagon effect of having a big party and let's roll. Although a lot of the Tea Party in its incarnation previously was not necessarily full of youngins. But they were having fun. Like they were energetic. Right. They were You're right. talking excited. about the fire in the belly. Yeah. I think the Obama analogy is a little tricky because Obama, I mean, he was a special case. He wasn't He wasn't like singing that old time liberal religion and getting people whipped up about the kind of ideology of his of his campaign. He was he was creating it around himself. And I think that's what you will have. If you're going to have a candidate who can create that sense of excitement, David, which you put your finger on, which is so important, it's going to come out of the candidate, not necessarily out of the movement, which is why the Tea Party was both interesting and also doomed to have what's happening. Interesting because it was a movement with no leader, which is kind of amazing, but also doomed to happen what happened now, which is that in the CBS poll this week, just 15% of Americans say they support the Tea Party. And that's because when you have no leader, you're defined by your most kooky, nutty members. And so the Tea Party is, um, as a label, is in somewhat tough shape, although as we discussed, the ideology is still alive and well. So, Emily, there was this fascinating story, I thought, by Tom Edsel in the New York Times this week. There were actually a pair of fascinating stories, one by Tom Edsel, one by Nate Cohn, about whiteness and politics. And, and Hispanicness and politics. And Hispanicness. And the, so the first one by Nate Cohn pointed out, I'm going to pass that quickly, is that an increasing number of Hispanics have changed their census identification from Hispanic to white, that increasingly Hispanics or some significant percentage are becoming whiter by self-identification. Then there was a piece by Tom Edsel tacking at the point that was made very much after the 2012 election, that the Republican Party had become this party of white voters. And the claim was always, oh, you can't win that way. And Edsel was saying, Edsel wrote that actually there's a case to be made that for a while at least you can win because if you look at the psychology of certain set of whites who begin to feel that they are in the minority, if you present a situation to them where they're told you're, you're, America is no longer a majority white country, that it pushes some moderates and people who lean more left to the right. And the Republicans, if they want to play a whites-only strategy, which it's not clear they do, but let's say they wanted to, that they might be able to hold a coalition which is really aimed at white voters for longer than people have expected. Did you find that Edsel argument persuasive? Well, I could see that it would be both a relief and a temptation for Republican leaders because it suggests that they don't have to remake themselves and remake the party platform in a way that would be risky in terms of appealing to that base. Because in order to reach out to Latinos, obviously, you need to change your stance on immigration. Which, and they, which the party is absolutely not willing to do. I mean, that's one of the things we didn't talk about, but the, the party has moved much further to the right on immigration. Exactly. And that's not the only thing. So this sort of gets, suggests that you can kind of take a deep breath and and continue along without getting completely 
trounced at the polls. What I was missing from the analysis, though, is the state-by-state breakdown mm-hmm. of this. And then I went and read another piece, which I think was also by Nate Cohn, about Florida. And Florida seemed to be going in precisely the opposite direction. It suggested, based on the demographics and the degree to which Cuban-Americans are no longer as big a share of the Hispanic population, that if the Republicans continued along merrily, Florida would be utterly gone to them. I mean, one of the statistics in it was that if you had the decreasing share of the white population now— if you had had that share in um, the year that Kerry ran, that Kerry would have won by seven mm-hmm. points. It was this notion that Obama was a particular problem in some states for Democrats, probably because he's black, if we think that racism is fueling the way in which people supported Kerry and not Obama in some states, particularly in the South. I would subscribe to that theory. But in any case, you think of another Democratic candidate, a Hillary Clinton, and she starts to look almost invincible in a state like Florida because of the changing demographics. So even if nationally there is some um, appeal and legitimacy to Edsel's argument, which wasn't prescriptive, he was describing something, I just still think the party, but, uh, although, also, but the, but you have a congr- Republican party is right now is very much chosen to be a congressional party. They're so strong in Congress. Can't they, they decide to sort of essentially? Well, I don't sacrifice think they the would. Presidency. I don't know if they would decide to sacrifice the presidency. But, but, but they but, could ostensibly do that, even if they don't admit it to themselves. They could basically make I mean, that it, happen. John, that sort of feels like what they have done with the way the way they're carrying themselves out on immigration. For example, is to say, you know what, district by district, this is a losing issue for us. And it will take a long time to undo district by district because of the way redistricting works. I think what the numbers show, what the numbers do is they don't push anybody to take any risks on the immigration question. So the immigration is not cost free. And if Republican Party leaders like John Boehner who want immigration reform have to decide both for 2014 and 2016, is it worth the headache? In 2014, they've decided, no, it's not worth the headache because you're going to have a, a big internal fight. And it's going to be bloody. Make we're not we don't show ourselves in our best light when we're having these conversations in public, and that will cost us a because it won't keep the focus on how bad the Affordable Care Act is. B, it will create all kinds of bad images for the party, and that'll hurt us in 2016 too. So, eesh, too hard to have it now. The argument of the people who said, no, you have to have this fight now, is that if you don't have it, you're never going to appeal to these voters and the party is going to be sunk. So it's short-term versus long-term thinking. What Edsel's analysis and the analysis, there's been lots of this since the minute the polls were closed in 2012, allows a lot of people to do is basically put off the decision. That Basically, people just decide not to take the risk and look for a more opportune moment to then finally kind of get right on immigration. And by the way, there's huge, huge debate about whether you can, quote unquote, get right on immigration anyway, so that basically the reason you would want to pass immigration reform is to please the Chamber of Commerce and some evangelicals, but not because you're going to get a whole new wave of Hispanic voters. I mean, surely the sort of, OK, we're going to put this off is going to prove to have been the wrong strategy. And the people who are like Jeb Bush, who are warning that this is a mistake, will be proven right because it must. The question is just how long is this going to take? Is it four years from now, six years, eight years, 10 years? The country is changing in this direction. Well, it'll be I mean, if they lose in 2016, it will be very interesting to see whether they I mean, there's an argument to be made that if they lose in 2016, they'll want to stymie the Hillary Clinton agenda and they will block immigration reform for that reason. I mean, it's it's I guess if they and if they win in 2016, they're gonna be like, we won. 
You know, there was another part of the Edsel piece about the way in which white people respond to the information that the country is going to become majority minority mm-hmm. and the kind of some interesting sociological experiments on how people say the right thing about how that's perfectly okay with them. But then if you ask the question in a subtler way, you tease out all this basically latent racism. And that's true for Democrats as well as Republicans. So a few, I think like a year and a half ago, I was on Colbert and we were talking about affirmative action. I, in a pretty tossed off way, said something about how maybe the country would be better off if it was majority minority. I think I even just like agreed with Colbert saying that. Anyway, that comment comes back at me all the time on Twitter, over email. It's like the People most... say, oh, Emily Bazelon thinks the country would be better I off. I get tweets that say, did you really say we'd be better off if all white people died? Like, that's yeah. how it comes back at me. Like, do you really want to lower the white birth rate as if, like, I'm in favor of euthanasia for white people? It It is so weird to me. I mean, I completely stand by the fact that I do think the country might be a better place if it was a majority minority. It doesn't seem to me like white people have done such a good job running it in many ways, um, a topic we will be on in a moment. Second, yeah. But, I, you know, I just am really struck by how it's like I touched some third rail of a particular part of conservative thinking that I just didn't even really know was out there. All right. Let us hear from our next sponsor, which is Citrix Meeting. Building a strong relationship with your team. Like I have a strong relationship with John and Emily. It's key for any business. You need to meet and collaborate with coworkers and clients on a regular basis to brainstorm, develop quality ideas and solutions, and just work better. But gathering everyone in the same room can be impossible. That's why you need Citrix GoToMeeting, which is a powerfully simple way to meet in person online from anywhere at any time. It's so easy. You can sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You'll all be able to share the same screen to collaborate on projects in real time and turn on your webcams to see each other face-to-face. It's just like being in the same room, even when you're miles apart. Start working smarter today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Ta-Nehisi Coates, the national correspondent for The Atlantic and occasional GabFest guest, has written an extraordinary article for his magazine, The Case for Reparations. Ta-Nehisi argues that America, at the very least, must consider the possibility of paying reparations to black Americans, not merely for slavery, but for the explicit policies of terror and theft that continued for a century or more after slavery ended and that continue to make black America so poor and disadvantaged. We tried to get Ta-Nehisi to join us, but he is wall-to-wall TV today. So we are we are fully aware of the problems of talking about the story as three white Americans. And but yet we're going to do it anyway. On. So the fresh and surprising part of Tanahasi's article, which really is, I think, the most important article this year, certainly. It's a you, tour de force. It's amazing. But I think the, the most interesting part I found was this argument that, that let's look at reparations not as a question about slavery, which we all know was this, the great sin and blood of America, but what came after slavery, and not merely Jim Crow, not merely the what happened in the South after slavery, but explicit policies pursued at the national level by presidents, Democratic and Republican, for really basically up until the present day. He talks about there's obviously things like sharecropping and Jim Crow and, and segregation, which, which existed, but in particular points out the government policies which made it impossible for blacks to own homes, or if they did own homes, to build up wealth in those homes, or to have stability in those homes, or to live among anyone except other 
African-Americans and particularly to live among anyone who other than poor African-Americans and the damage that that caused. So I think that the story that America tells itself is that we we have redeemed the slim sin of slavery, that civil rights redeemed it, that the and the that it New was a Deal. really long time ago, and that it was and a long time, time to ago, let go of it, right? And that, that the people who were wounded by slavery are long since dead. We acknowledge the sin, we acknowledge the wrong, but that we we are beyond that. And Tanahasi argues no, that what we have done since then merits some kind of form of repayment. So, Emily, did you find this a persuasive argument? Well, yes. I mean, to me, the very powerful material about the injustices of the 20th century makes this into a different historical question because this is an era in which we all had grandparents, even parents who were alive. It feels much closer. You know, some people's families still got here afterward, but that, of course, isn't the point. The point is that you feel implicated in a very modern story. And, you know, you named some of the nationalized, very much institutionalized injustices, but there was also the way Social Security was constructed in the New Deal to leave out agricultural workers. Most black people did that kind of work, so they didn't get those benefits. There was the GI Bill played out in a way that left out African-Americans. And so you just have this feeling. And also Ta-Nehisi personalizes the work that historians have done by telling the stories of people in Chicago who brought what seems like this very righteous lawsuit against these predatory lenders who were stealing the houses out from under people in just the most sort of robbing, brutal way by, you know, both making people feel like they'd been duped and then also reselling out from under them these properties as they changed value. And the lawsuit had completely failed because our justice system has never really figured out a way to address this kind of racism. It had this moment for me as a Supreme Court watcher as like a path not taken. What would have happened if we'd had a conception of justice that would have allowed those lawsuits at the time to, you know, really succeed? And it all starts to feel like he's right and that the conversation about reparations he's calling for and he's really getting behind a bill which I think is introduced every year by Representative Conyers, which just calls for studying the feasibility about this. How would we go about it? What would that mean? Because the history is so much more recent, that seems both necessary and compelling and actually feasible. And even if um, some of this is about reframing, as well as the notion of actually closing the black-white wealth gap, it just starts to seem like this is such an important way of thinking about the inequities we have today, as opposed to this much more common, I think, conception of the problem is like this is the cultural flaw of the inner city black right. community and the rest of us are just sort of looking the other way until they get their act right. together. So, John, ta is particularly harsh on this idea, which is brooded about by, I think, the conservatives and liberals, although more on the conservative side. Well, probably. Barack Obama and Bill Cosby. But, but, that, it's, but that it's, but it's a two. cultural problem that, you know, black men need to be, be fathers and, you know, not wear their pants low. And, and that and you can't have the conversation without having all this context of what's been wrong. So what did, what did you take from that? Well, I, I actually found that to be the least persuasive part of the article. I, just going back to this, um, the idea of redlining inner cities and the sort of reaffirming what both of you said is that this brings the systemic racism, you know, kind of right up to your front door um, through the story of Clyde Ross, which he 
tells beautifully. And Ross travels the, you know, was a part of the Great Migration from Mississippi to Chicago. So it's rich with history, but it also takes you right to today. That part is just is just wonderful. But what he does with with um, this notion, he he uh, he quotes uh, Philadelphia Mayor um, Michael Nutter, who basically says, right, you know, and it's a version of what President Obama has said too, which is, you know, pull up your pants, stop having babies, and Nutter's black, and Nutter's black, and it then just kind of dismisses that and says, well, that'll never solve the trenchant racism which has been persistently forced on black people. You can't argue that. But President Obama and and Mayor Nutter are not saying it's going to remove all of persistent racism. And I think what happens sometimes in the in in this piece is that solutions like that, arguments like that, which can be deconstructed on their own terms, are just smashed with the idea that they're not going to solve this whole beautifully drawn cultural situation. They're not going to solve it all, so they're they're easily dismissed out of hand. And I think as a matter of argumentation, if you're trying to convince somebody who may hold those views, you're not going to get them if that's the purpose of the article. And I wonder to both of you whether you think it's a it's an excellent act of argumentation to convince people or whether it's just a beautifully rendered point of view. One sort of affirms and gives weaponry to people who generally feel that way, and the other actually pulls people across this bridge that at the end of the piece he says is so important to kind of have this conversation. I think there is a very sincere effort to convince people to take reparations seriously as an idea. It had a kind of moment in the 70s, at least in the legal academy. People flirted with it, talked about how would you actually calculate this and what would you do precisely? And it has since become what seems to me more like the province of kind of black radicalism. And it has never flown. It's never gotten taken seriously. I think ta is absolutely adamant about that. But your point, John, about whether by dismissing the kind of individual responsibility, like black father argument, whether he'll lose his audience. You know, my feeling about that is that it's sort of like the conversation that a lot of women had about Lean In and Sheryl Sandberg. So Sandberg's argument is like, women, come on, step up. Don't leave before you're ready to leave. And this is on you. And then what happens when you emphasize all those things? They are true. We do have some agency. But then you forefront all of that in a way that takes all the attention off of structural discrimination and the lack of preschool and yada, yada. But I don't mean yada, yada. Those are the important things. <laughs> right, but you've already right the there. opposite move. You're saying it's a question of ordering. Boom. There. Fine. That's great. And That's what you say. taking it off the table entirely. But yes. I think Tom has And I think say... the same is true with the Charles uh, Ogletree's argument about – so Ogletree argues basically that you should have a program of job training in public works that takes racial justice and includes the poor of all races. Then after describing what Ogletree is offering, Tanahasi says – to celebrate freedom and democracy while forgetting America's origins in a slavery economy is patriotism a la carte. That's a response to what Ogletree has offered, which doesn't really wrestle with – it just sort of smashes it and then moves on. And I, it feels like if I'm a person who needs to be convinced of this, that's not going to get me there. I think he's making a broader point there, and I see what you're saying. But I think he he's the part leading up to Ogletree, if I remember right, is where he's saying that white people now want to think of racism as secondary to inequality and 
poverty and class differences. I will completely fess up to myself as being in this category that we're so we think we're kind of beyond racism. Um, we hope that we are not racist ourselves. And so we're wishing away racial difference and thinking that everything is about class. And so then I think he includes Ogletree's proposal because it's not really targeting black people and then says that's not necessarily the way to go. But I don't really think this piece tries to grapple with exactly how reparations would work. I feel like that's another project. And what ta is saying is the framing of this is really crucial for understanding the black-white wealth gap and all of the problems that black people have in the society and that white people have basically moved on from this because we don't want to realize how entrenched this is in our whole history and society. But, see, so... I think the the point that he makes to bring slavery, attach Jim Crow and attach redlining and attach the GI Bill to a single narrative theme is a brilliant point and is has, it's done in a way that has never that I've never read before. I still came away thinking like, you know what, there is a slow march to justice though. It's a slow march. It's slower than we we thought I thought it was yesterday, but it's still America in 2014 you cannot say that we are what we were in 1954 or 1904 he... or 1854. Absolutely. But the and point is the debts of the past have never been repaid and well, they're no, not gone. No, but the debts, I guess, and then, so you can, your conclusion from that can be the debts of the past have never been repaid and must be repaid and repaid explicitly. Or you can say the debts of the past have never been repaid, aren't being repaid. And that's okay. No, the way they are repaid is that slowly by slowly, as my mother-in-law says, slowly by slowly, we are getting closer and then, to one, and we're never we're we're not getting there as quickly as one would like. And this that could argue for a much more a broader investment in in trying to help the poor and trying to make home ownership easier and and grapple at some of the pol- public policy measures. But I don't think it necessarily leads to the conclusion that therefore you just you pay it off and that that's the resolution. I think the resolution yeah, so is then- is you you mo- you keep moving towards it. But see, I feel like legally speaking, that's fine. You know, the difference here is the de jure, the legal apparatus, the structural discrimination that we've done a good job of attacking. Then there's de facto, there's what's on the ground. And the statistic here about how the income gap between black and white households is roughly the same as it was in 1970. That's where the crux of the problem that he's addressing is because it's one thing to give up a legal privilege. People can see, you know, how deeply unfair that is. They can't really make an argument for it. But then if you try to hit people where it really hurts in terms of actual money and wealth, that is a whole different project. And that's why we've never taken reparations seriously. And it's why we have so much entrenched. But but I think if I could just, I think what he's trying to say is even if you have, even if you don't decide on a dollar amount, that this conversation needs to happen in its most kind of morally charged way, making the case that the moral injustice is present and real, and that that has to always be kind of on the table and in the forefront of the conversation. Because if you go to the by the inch by inch approach, it allows that to kind of slip away and we lose our sense of urgency because sure think progress happens but also lots of stuff happens in the shadows that maintains this moral outrage that keeps it alive and just out of sight and, and you- also most white people and maybe some black people too just think it's really easy to blame what they see as like irresponsible you know black men who aren't taking care of their kids without seeing all the structural context for it you know i guess i how do i come at this slightly differently, which is that, so there's this master narrative of American life, which 
Ta-Nehisi blows up in this piece. The the master narrative, which is that we had slavery, it was we the, we fought a civil war to fix it. We fixed it. We made amends. We made amends. We had a civil rights movement, which you know, which edited it slightly. And huzzah, we're here. We have. And yeah. King I wonder King if that's really if that's really a true characterization of it. But anyway, go ahead. Wait, of what? It's pretty true. I think American there are a lot of people. Narrative? I think there are a lot of people who believe a version of what you articulated earlier, which is it was horrible. It got a little bit better. We're still not there, but we're making slow progress, and hopefully, we'll continue to. It's not keeping up people at night. I mean, the master narrative of America is what I just described, John. I mean, I think most people, if they if they pondered a lot to stop and think about it, they would perhaps reach that conclusion. But basically, day to day, I mean, I speak for myself. I speak as someone who believes in that master narrative fundamentally. Right, but um, you don't believe in fundamentally that everything was solved in 1965. No, but we do gloss over all yeah. this 20th century history, which is a real problem for this master narrative. And so here's we didn't here's gloss where... over the Civil Rights Act passing. No, that's a triumphant moment where you we're take glossing the over yeah, all you, the redlining. You, you, I mean, I was just talking. Oh, to my oh, friend. I see what you're saying. I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you're saying. I, right, I got it. So, got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. okay. So reparations obviously has all these political obstacles. I mean, it's never going to happen in the world we can imagine because. This oh, Congress. I'm so mad at you for taking that off the table. It has okay. to at least survive okay. this conversation. But, but I, I'm interested in thinking about this in the context of the persistence of of one's own sense of victimhood. And when you look around the world at what happens to peoples who think about this and it, where it becomes the story that you tell yourself. And I'm not in any way... I would not argue with ta for one second or dispute anything or question his story that he tells here, which I think is, a, is incredibly powerful and persuasive. But if you look at the world where, pe- where people sort of sit and think about their victimhood, it's a very bad thing. Well, right, which is one reason why black people themselves have moved on from this history to a degree, because it can be corrosive to one's psychology. On the other hand, if you never get paid back and nobody will even acknowledge the degree to which your life has been predetermined by these factors, then you're constantly, it's like you're pushing this rock uphill and nobody even notices that that's what you're doing. And that's what the wealth gap among families really means. It's hidden. It's not there. It makes an enormous difference in the choices people make and how they live. Their right. lives. Right. It does. No, it does. But is it, would, would an, every American reading the story be better than reparations? Not just reading the story. I mean, if it fundamentally altered our narrative and our psychology, that would be something. And I do think there's a way in which this piece is as much about reframing the black experience and how we think of our history as it is about a particular call for reparations. But I also think there is actually a very practical question on the table. And one of the ways that that felt very real to me is the comparison he draws to how Israel accepted reparations from the German government on behalf of the victims of the Holocaust. And there was a lot of unrest about it in Israel at the time, that this was blood money. And then they used it to build their whole electrical grid, and everyone was pretty much better off for it. Money does help and solve problems. Well, I mean, there are lots of reasons why that is a different example. That was a explicit recent crime against people who were, who were the relatives of This of crime those who is looking benefited. pretty recent, and you could find some relatives. The argument you would make is that what America needs to do is invest in, is therefore build what's the equivalent of building an electrical grid for black America. It's not to to pay black America as though black America is other, 
Black America is not other. Black America is America. African Americans are American. But certainly, I mean, so this you, is the so next So you build project. America. You don't build. A, yeah. You well, don't, we like, certainly go have not been overly doing that. Right. Certainly, we could spend more money on these neighborhoods and on the communities and people in, in which these people live. Like it wouldn't be that hard. No, but maybe that's what I'm getting at. Maybe that's that's where I the thing is is that it is that the idea of reparations is that it treats. It, like, assumes that America itself doesn't want to benefit. All of America benefits when the poorest benefit, right? Well, yes, in theory. Sure. And I think that you could argue that we would be, if the nation had this, you know, coming to consciousness moment, that we would all in the end be better off and these communities would be healthier. And then we'd all, it would it would be good for everyone. But I think ta also wants to say that there's a particular route that needs to take. And it's not the sort of de-racialized notion that we fight all poverty as if it's the same and we don't think about the history. John, do you... What, what do you think this idea will do? How will it travel out in the world? And will it actually have impact in the world? I don't know. You know, the, we are already in the middle of a very everybody rushing off to their corners race conversation before this great argument was put forward. And in reaction to it, a lot of people have done just that. And as he argues so well in the piece, even if people weren't already in their knee-jerk rush to their corners mode, which we're in right now, this is a difficult thing for people to look at who think of America in a certain way, whether it's the master, master narrative, David, that you described or one that's, you know, or a different one. This is a hard thing to think about, even in the best of circumstances, I guess is what I'm saying. And we're in the kind of stupidest of circumstances. And that's why I obsess probably too much in how the conversation takes place and how you pull people in who are not already predisposed to taking in your evidence and being persuaded by it. Those are the people you're going to need to get in this conversation. And I don't, I don't know how you do that. Maybe it's impossible. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm all for the very modest aims of this piece. Obviously, it's a sweeping piece in its construction. But at the very end, basically, he says this is a conversation that would just be useful to have, even if it never takes us anywhere. And that would be I'm, – I'm a huge fan of those conversations, and I think that was an elegant way to um, put this because what it does, again, as a good uh, matter of argumentation, is it doesn't allow people to kill you with like, well, wait, how are you going to do this? And are you going to have four hearings or are you going to have six? And are there going to be seven Democrats on the committee or eight? You know, you don't – it doesn't get strangled in the stupid technical details. I would – it would be great if that uh, that conversation could take place because it would actually – get people who are reacting in a kind of knee-jerk way to actually articulate what they believe. And that would be, you know, this is a topic where people don't really always say what they believe. So I'm all for getting them to. All right. The article is The Case for Operations by ta Coates. You must read it. It is the most powerful article you will read this year. It's brilliant. And um, go out and read it. It's in the Atlantic. Let's move on to cocktail chatter. When you're done reading ta story, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? I am going to chatter about uh, something that the Week magazine did this week, which is um, a fantastic little use of the Internet. It was called the Bad Opinion Generator, in which it serves you, just on a single page, one incredibly bad call that some person over time has made. One of them is, for example, 
remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop because women like to get out of the house, like to handle merchandise, like to be able to change their minds. That was Time magazine offering predictions for the year 2000 in 1966. There's as much chance of repealing the 18th Amendment prohibition of alcohol as there is for a hummingbird to fly to the planet Mars with the Washington Monument tied to its tail. And then the final one, which I love, Condi versus Hillary, the next great presidential race. That was the title of a 2005 book by uh, pundit Dick Morris. Uh, the reason I love this is not only it's amusing and a great use of the Internet and a tiny little morsel that uh, enlivens the day, but as a fan of failure and as a practitioner of um, bad analysis, there is a distinction between making a risky assessment of the state of affairs, which is good, and being kind of pugilistically, arrogantly certain of your opinion. And these opinions are the kinds that were offered with that smug air of certitude. And seeing the smug air of certitude deflated, even if it's to, you know, 100 years later, I think that's just generally a good thing to have in the air and the culture. And so I'm, I'm happy they brought this into being. You guys get to see the smug air of certitude deflated every week on the show because <laughs> John, I, I usually have the air of certitude, and you guys do a great job. But John won't make it. any predictions, and this yes, is why, this is why. <laughs> he doesn't want to be on the bad opinion generator. God, if I, I could, you could make a whole bad opinion generator for me alone. Probably true. Emily Bazelon, give us a bad opinion. <laughs> I have been following with a lot of interest the crazy stories about the backlash to school reform in Newark. There's a great piece in The New Yorker this week by Dale Russikoff, and this has implications for ed reform, for these venture philanthropists who are investing in charter schools and other kind of uh, system-busting tactics for Cory Booker, the senator from um, New Jersey, who was, of course, the mastermind of ed reform in Newark. And I've been reading a book coming out soon, which um, gives such great historical context for this fight. I really want to recommend it. It's called The Teacher Wars um, by Dana Goldstein, who writes for Slate sometimes. And the subtitle is A History of America's Most Embattled Profession. And I'm just learning so much from reading it. It's just really, really interesting. So if you're at all interested in education, look for that book. Yeah, Dana Goldstein. We love Dana Goldstein here at Slate Central. My chatter, a story today that the CIA announced, or they announced via an, um, a letter from the White House to various public health officials, that they are no longer using immunization programs to gather information. So if you remember, in the run-up to the assassination of, an assassination, that's not the right word, to the killing, I guess the assassination of, of uh, Osama bin Laden, the CIA set up a fake hepatitis vaccine program. They hired a doctor to do a hepatitis vaccination program in the area around where they suspected bin Laden was living, and they wanted to get access to bin Laden's house and to gather information that this they were going to use this as a front. The doctor who was involved in it was arrested, and since then, dozens, this is not a few, dozens of public health workers in Pakistan have been murdered because people suspect they are American spies. This is just was one of the most disgraceful episodes and of all the many disgraceful ways that America's intelligence agencies have embarrassed our nation recently. This is one that, that it was it was you could have predicted in advance. You could have known like this is a terrible idea. This is going to give people no trust in public health. It's going to make it impossible to, to do this later if it ever comes out. And it's led to, of course, the immediate deaths of those 
those public health officials in Pakistan, and and then it leads to people having suspicion about vaccination generally. It is, I mean, it's obviously good that we've stopped doing it, but it was a horror show that we did it to begin with. Um, That's a good opinion, or at least a true opinion. Yeah, that was a good. I mean, that was a good and true opinion. Credits. So we our show page is gabfestislate.com. Please come there. We have links to what we talked about today. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please write us letters, notes, comments, opinions. You should subscribe to the podcast at the iTunes store. You can search for Slate Political Gabfest. Leave a comment and a rating while you're there. Also, you try. Uh, someone asked me today or this week about what if you're an Android user, what to use. I've heard Beyond Pod is good if you're an Android user. If you're not using uh, iTunes, and if you're an Stitcher actual and SoundCloud, Android. what's that? And if you're an actual Android, then do you think we could just Androids in count hand. in our listeners? Do they do they buy things from our advertisers? I hope so. Mike Volo produces the show. Rebecca Cohen is our intern. I think she has one more week as our intern. I think she has next week. Oh, yeah. so sad. Yeah. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. He's the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And for Emily Basil and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. We'll be with you next week. If you're still here, that means you're a big fan of Slate Podcasts, which means you should be a big fan of The Gist with Mike Pesca, Slate's new daily podcast. The Gist is my new favorite podcast. It's already my new favorite podcast. It's only been around for a couple of weeks. Mike is a force of nature. He's the quickest and funniest interviewer around. And his closing monologues, which he calls the spiel, the spiel, the spiel, spiel, are alone worth the price of admission, which is, of course, zero. So uh, here's a clip from a recent gist. If you like it, please subscribe to the gist. Search for the gist and slate in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast app. It's such a great show. Have I ever told you about somehow this idea? Somehow this idea is, and I learned this from Mike and the Mad Dog, it could start off any conversation. It's if you're stuck for something to say, just say the word. Somehow this idea that that cran grape is going to replace orange juice as a popular breakfast drink, somehow this idea that unicorns are better than centaurs, I don't know, does anyone say that? But I got one and it's a legit one, it's today's spiel. Somehow this idea that rude, mean, dismissive, pushy, or brusque behavior in executives is universally seen as strength and directness is a laughable idea. There were two words in the articles about Jill Abramson that were flashpoints, pushy and brusque. I'll give you this. Pushy is pushing it. Shouldn't a boss push? It does seem weird to criticize a boss for being pushy. Though I do think pushy might mean other things like overly demanding or unforgiving. And if the article's quoted by saying she was unforgiving, would we be so up in arms? But they weren't. They said pushy, and so that was seen as sexist. Fair enough. But then there's brusque. In the New Republic, Rebecca Traister wrote, Abramson was brusque and pushy, characteristics not often attributed to male bosses. In Reuters, Shane Farrow wrote, Her management style, pushy, brusque, a lot of other words that only seem to be attributed to women in leadership roles. And uh, the journalist Ann Friedman had an article, If Jill Abramson Were a Man, where she wrote, If Jill Abramson is brusque, blunt, and dismissive, if she were a man, he does not like to waste time. Saying men are held if they're brusque, or that brusqueness is always translated, manslated, to a laudatory term, that is an assertion. So let's look at the evidence. Let's think of some CEOs who have been described as brusque. There's Chainsaw Al Dunlap. There's Donald Trump. There's Daniel Schneider. You know him. He owns the Washington football team. 
Quote, his style at times has been brusque, most notably when he told USA Today, we'll never change the name. It's that simple. Never. You can use caps. Are those good CEOs? Does brusque really correlate to direct and bold? This from the book Anatomy of Apple, lesson Steve Jobs taught us. Mike Scott was forced out as Apple president, a victim of his own ruthless drive. Scott was dogmatic. He did stupid things. Scott was brusque and demanding with employees. Scott was a kind of clumsy parent who tried hard, sometimes too hard. Wait a minute. Comparing a CEO to a parent? We wouldn't do that with a man, except we did. We wouldn't call a man brusque. We just called a man brusque. Here's another example. Mike Bloomberg personally hired Jamie Rubin, a former State Department spokesman. You know Jamie Rubin. He's Christiane Amanpour's husband. Article goes on to note there were personality differences. Rubin can be brusque and domineering in meetings. Rubin was fired last September. Robert Nardelli, former Chrysler CEO, according to Business Week, was criticized for a brusque management style. Of AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, quote, it wasn't the first time Armstrong made headlines for appearing brusque and indifferent to employees. And that was not a celebratory article. Brusque is bad in a man. Brusque does not go unnoticed or change to direct just because it's a man. There are rude executives and encouraging executives, and people tend to like the encouraging ones. In what world, and by the way, this is a close cousin too, somehow this idea that, but anyway, in what world do people want to work for a jerk? Male bosses who are rude or brusque and they get called that, they're not liked. Male leaders who are jerks are called jerks and they are often fired for being jerks, brusque jerks, or more fairly, brusque jerks who don't make owners money. Investors want results, but there's a growing consensus among those who really know business that brusque is bad for business. Now, of course, to be fair, the reason that I could find so many male CEOs criticized for brusqueness is that there are just so many male CEOs, 476 of the Fortune 500. And also, maybe there's a perception of male CEOs as hard-charging hotheads, because we know the hard-charging hotheads, like George Steinbrenner. Do we know Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, Alan Wurzel? They are some of the very best managers described in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Brusque will not get you to make the leap. So this idea that somehow brusqueness isn't seen in men or that brusqueness is celebrated in men and called something else is a stereotype not based on evidence. So I stick up for men by noting that they too can be brusque. And when they are, it is noted and not liked. (laughs) 